You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And turn again to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. And we will begin with prayer before we begin to study God's Word. When you found your place, let's bow our heads. Our Father, we come now to your Word, and our trust and confidence is that you will reveal yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. We pray that you would help us to see more of Christ and see Him clearly. Help us to understand your will and your mind and your will for us. We pray, O oh God, that you would bless this time, and the Spirit of God, you would be our teacher, and that your Word would be our guide. Bless our time together now in your Word, we ask in Christ's name, and for his sake and his glory. Amen. John chapter 4, we're going to be looking today at verses 43 through 45, and possibly a little bit of verse 46. Read with me again verse 43. After the two days he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. This gospel was written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing we might have life in his name. We are told the purpose of that at the end of John's gospel, chapter 20. And yet as we read through the Gospel of John, we see that overwhelmingly the reaction of those who heard Jesus and knew Jesus was not one of belief, it was one of disbelief. It was one of rejection and hostility and opposition to him, particularly from the religious leaders. And yet as we work our way through the Gospel of John, there are these rare snippets of belief, uh, mostly individuals who believed, single individuals who believed him. And then we get to John chapter 4, and last time we kind of left on a high note where Jesus had was in the city of Sychar, and as a result of two days spent in that city with the Samaritans, most of the people, or many of the people, we should say, in the village believed. A number believed because of the woman and her testimony, and then a number believed because they had gone out to the well to see Jesus for themselves, and then they invited him to stay two days in Sychar, which he did. He and his disciples stayed there for two days, and as a result of that, Many believed on him because they heard him themselves. And they believed based upon Jesus' word. And then we get to John 43, or John 4 verse 43, and we read something that really should strike us as odd. After two days, he departed and went again into Galilee. Now, this actually is connected with the beginning of chapter 4 in verses 1 through 3, and I want you to turn back there for just a second and look at those first three verses. It's been a while since we were there, so you may have sort of forgotten where we started in chapter 4. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now you remember the rest of the story. It was on his way to Galilee, passing through Samaria, that he gets, we would call it sidetracked, as it were. He meets the woman at the well. They have the discussion two days in Samaria. Then we pick it up again in verse 43. Now he's continuing on into Galilee. That was his intention at the beginning of the chapter. 
everything with the woman at the well and everything in the city of Sychar with the villagers and the time spent there, the two days, that was, we would say, a sort of a rabbit trail or a parenthesis, as it were. But now after spending two days in Sychar, Jesus is doing what he had set out to do at the beginning of chapter 4, which was to go up into Galilee. Now, do you remember the map that we painted on the canvas of your mind, as it were, several months ago? We had Judea in the south. We had Galilee in the north. And in between Judea and Galilee, we had Samaria smack dab in the middle of that. Well, Jesus was in Judea at the beginning of chapter 4, and because he had heard or he knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was becoming very successful and more well-known than John, which is as it should have been, and that was John's design to sort of decrease and to let Christ increase, the Pharisees heard that, and I think in order to avoid the conflict that would come with the Pharisees, because it wasn't his time yet, he left Judea in the south and traveled north up toward Galilee, stopping in Samaria at Sychar. And that is where he had probably the the greatest reception of belief that is recorded anywhere in the New Testament to his ministry and to his message. When a number of people believed, and they believed on him. Now, when Jesus arrives in Galilee in the north, this begins at verse 43, what we call the great Galilean ministry, the great Galilean ministry. I wish there was some sort of a chapter break, and maybe there is in your Bible at least some sort of a division in the text between verse 42 and 43, because verse verse 43 begins a new phase, or at least sort of a new section in John's gospel. So we can kind of turn our back at verse 42, and we're leaving Sychar and, and that episode and that incident in those two days in the past, and now verse 43 begins what's called the Great Galilean Ministry. The great Galilean ministry took about 16 months of our Lord's life. He was up in Galilee, in Cana, and in Nazareth, and in Capernaum, in the cities of Galilee, traveling around, preaching, teaching, healing, staying with his disciples, staying with people for about 16 months. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, devote a lot of time to those 16 months of our Lord's life. The Gospel of Matthew records the great Galilean ministry from chapters 4 through 15, Mark is chapters 1 through 7, and Luke is chapters 4 through 9. So it's quite a lot of time and text that's given to Jesus' time in Galilee. But though the other three gospel writers record the great Galilean ministry, and a lot of the things that were said and done in the northern region of the country at that time, nobody else, no other gospel writer, records the miracle that is contained at the end of John chapter 4. This miracle, the healing of the nobleman's son, is a miracle that's not recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's only recorded in John, which is one of those indications that we have that John was at least aware of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke had recorded in their Gospels. I think John knew full well what Matthew, Mark, and Luke had written. I think he had read those Gospels. John is a later Gospel written after the first three Gospels. And John selects all the way through his Gospel material that the other three Gospel writers don't include. And this miracle is one of those incidences. Now, verses 43 through 46 introduced the miracle, sort of set the stage and explained to us how it is that Jesus gets from Judea in the south up to where he's going to perform this miracle, the healing of the nobleman's son in the north. And verses 43 through 46 are some of those verses that you and I would kind of read over in order to get to the good stuff. The good stuff being the miracle at the end of chapter 4. Don't you read your Bible that way? You're reading through it and you think, oh, this is just a travel log. I just read through this. Okay, he went there. He saw this person. Got Now I want to get to the good stuff, the miracle. Well, actually, I think all of it's good stuff, and I think verses 43 through 46 is one of those introductions. It contains little details that you and I have to sort of get our, our minds around if we are going to appreciate 
chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Because this sort of introduces and sets the stage for what is to come in the Gospel of John. So we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 46. We're going to see two things. First of all, the reason Jesus went to Galilee. There's a reason given here. And then second, the reaction of the Galileans when he came to Galilee. The reason Jesus came to Galilee and then the reactions. The reason is given in verses 43 and 44. Look at those two verses again. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. Now stop there for just a second. After two days, he went from Sychar into Galilee. Now that's one of those statements that strikes me as odd. And it's one of those statements that I wouldn't expect to read, but I do. And here's why it is odd to me, and here's why I don't expect to to read that in this passage. Can you think of a single other city, a single other incident in all of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus where he was received like he was in Sychar? Can you think of another town that he went to where people believed on him and confessed him to be the Savior of the world? Where people heard him and without a sign, without a miracle, without anything else, just believed his word? He spoke and they believed it and they said, we know now because we have heard him, we know now that this one is the Savior of the world. Can you think of another city, another region where Jesus visited where he had a reception like he did in Sychar? You can't, can you? Because mostly he was rejected. You say, but Jim, there were crowds that followed him. As long as he was multiplying bread and fish and feeding people for free, he gathered a crowd. As long as he was healing the sick and casting out demons and performing the signs and healing all who were brought to him, he gathered a crowd. But we're going to see in chapter 6, verse 66, that once Jesus begins to lay down the demands and to offend the sinner and tell them what they can't do and begins to show them what his demands are and that he demands total commitment and obedience, that's when people say, no, no, that's enough for me. I'm willing to follow you as long as we get the bread and the fish. But these demands you're teaching, that I can't stomach. And they turn away, John 6, verse 66 says, and they walk with him no more. They're not interested in his teaching. They're interested in the signs. But can you think of another incident in all of the life of the Lord Jesus, any place he went, where people based only upon his word believed him and embraced him as their Savior? And he had the type of reception where many people believed and many more people believed and the whole city wanted him to stay. You can't. And how long did he stay there? Two days. Two days. Why did he leave after two days? Would you have left after two days? No, you wouldn't have. You would have said what I would have said. I would have said, look at the way that God is opening a door for effective ministry in this region. People are responding to the gospel. People are embracing this. People are believing this. This is success. Surely God is doing a work here. We can't leave this now when it's just beginning. If we were to move on and do something else, well, God would want us to stay here because this is where people are embracing the message. We need to set up our ministry headquarters in Sychar. And we will train the Samaritans to go out into the surrounding villages two by two, presenting the gospel and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And we'll have multitudes of disciples. This is where the fruit is. This is where the success is. This is where it's easy to minister. So since God is doing a work, we will stay right here. Jesus, two days. And then he left. You and I would have stayed there. Why? Because the ministry was easy there. It is easy to preach to people who love you and applaud you and hail you. It is much more difficult to minister among those who despise you and hate you and reject you. And yet Jesus went from where he was hailed to where he was hated. And he only stayed where he was hailed 
or two days. And then on he went. Why did he leave? Verse 44 gives us the answer. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now that's why he left. For he testified. He departed from Sychar and went into Galilee. You and I would say because of. The for there at the beginning of verse 44 explains to us the reason. It was because Jesus himself had said a prophet has no honor in his own country. That's the reason he went from Sychar north into Galilee. He did that because he himself had said a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, what what is his own country? His own country is Galilee. That's where he grew up in Nazareth. It wasn't Judea. It wasn't Samaria. It was Galilee. And Jesus himself had said this proverbial statement, a prophet has no honor except, or a prophet is honored except in his hometown and in his own household. It was a proverbial statement of the day, one that Jesus used, I think, frequently. He used it particularly when he was in the north, in Nazareth and Galilee and those regions. And he spoke of Nazareth as being his own country. Three other times this is recorded in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three times it comes from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter 6, and Luke chapter 4, if you want to look that up. And here John records it as well. I think this is something that Jesus said often to his disciples. A prophet is without honor in his own country. Or you might say a prophet is honored everywhere he goes, except when he goes home. And why is it that when he goes home, he is not respected? Isn't that a mark or an indication of human depravity that we actually value less the things that we are most familiar with? In Galilee is the region, and in Nazareth in particular, is where they were most familiar with Jesus. That's where they knew him best. He'd grown up there, and they knew him. And yet, is it not true that we despise the things that we are most familiar with? We have a proverb of our day that kind of expresses the same thing. Familiarity breeds what? Contempt. That doesn't have to breed contempt, but a lot of times it breeds contempt. Most often, it just breeds apathy. We become apathetic toward, and we seek, we, we fail to value the things that are nearest to us and that we are most familiar with. Let me ask you a question. What blessings are you most likely to take advantage of? The out of the ordinary, extraordinary, once in a lifetime, massive work of God blessings that just slap you in the face and you say, wow, where did that come from? Or the ordinary, everyday blessings that you experience every single day, day after day after day. Which are the ones that you're most likely to value less and to take advantage of and to take for granted and to not see the value in? It's the ones that you are most familiar with. Men can begin to neglect their wives and not value them simply because they're there every week. And women can begin to neglect their husbands and not see the value in their husbands because they're there. And they're always there. At no time do we value our children and our spouse as much as when some disease or some illness or some tragedy threatens to take them from us. At no time do we value our jobs like when they are in jeopardy. At no time do we value our house like when it burns down. At no time do we value a blessing like when it is threatened to be taken from us or when it is removed. But when we have it every day, we become so familiar with it that we treat it with disdain and apathy and actually can sometimes view it with contempt. It is the same thing with the blessing of having a prophet in your own hometown. You become so familiar with him. You become so so familiar with his message that you begin to hold him in contempt. And that's what they did with Jesus. Nazareth, they knew him. Is this not Jesus, Joseph's son, son of a carpenter? We know him. He grew up here. We watched him go to school. We watched him grow up. He played with our kids. 
He was friends with my son and my nephew. And they heard him teach and they heard him preach. And when he returned to Nazareth, they said, we know him. He's nothing special. And they didn't view him as anything special. It is such a mark of our own depravity and our own sinfulness and our own darkened hearts that we value the things that are closest to us the least. And by the way, I think that's one of the reasons why God threatens sometimes and sometimes does take away our blessings so that we might learn to cherish them more. Because when they're removed from us, all of a sudden we realize their true value. Well, that's what they did with Jesus. They didn't value him in Nazareth because they were familiar with him. They knew him. And so a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. Now, what is it that John means when he says that Jesus went into Galilee because Jesus had told them a prophet is without honor in his own hometown? What is John getting at? What was Jesus thinking? What was going through his mind? He told his disciples, I'm going to be without honor in Nazareth. So let's go there. I'm going to be without honor in Galilee. So we're going to Galilee. It was because he had told them this that he expected to be without honor in the north that he actually turned and went into the north. Now, Bible commentaries, and you'd think this would be a simple thing to explain, but it's not necessarily so simple, simply because of the language and the context and how it all works out. I read probably seven different explanations as to what John is getting at and what is meant by that verse 43 and 44. And I'm not going to give you all seven of them, so don't panic. I'm going to give you a couple of them that I think fit with the context and might explain what John is driving at. J.C. Ryle and his commentary, and J.C. Ryle is a reliable commentator and a good man, J.C. Ryle says the simplest and best explanation for this is that what John is doing is he is telling us why Jesus went into Cana of Galilee and not Nazareth of Galilee. If Nazareth was his own, excuse me, if Nazareth was his own country, Nazareth was where you would expect him to go when he went back to his own country. But he doesn't go to Nazareth. Instead, we're told he goes into Cana. And this is the reason he went into Cana, because he wouldn't be welcomed in Nazareth. So he went into Cana instead. And that's where he turned the water into wine, and that's where he healed a nobleman's son. That is a simple explanation for what John might be getting at, but I think there's something that is just as simple, much more profound, and actually encompasses all the details of the text. Might I suggest to you, and this is going to be hard to swallow at first, but think about it for a second. Jesus went into Galilee because he knew he would be rejected in Galilee. He went into Galilee because he knew that he would be rejected in Galilee. He actually went to the place where he knew that rejection would be his lot. Now, why might he do that? I would suggest he would do it because in the south, in Judea, the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And the time of the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees had not yet come. Jesus is not afraid of conflict. In fact, he's going to pursue conflict later in the gospel. He's going to say things intentionally to get under the skin of the Pharisees. He's going to say things intentionally to get them angry at him, but not now. The time is not yet. The time will come for that, but it's not yet. And so in order to go from where he is embraced and applauded and accepted and hailed, he actually turns and purposes to go toward the place where he would be rejected. As one writer says, it is not in the mind of Jesus to stay where the welcome was greatest or the difficulties least. It would be in your and my mind. It would be in our mind to say, well, this is where it seems easiest to minister. This must be where God has called me to be. And so we would stay where it's easiest to serve, but not for Jesus. He actually went to where it was most difficult, where the conflict would be, the, where the rejection would be the greatest. Another writer says he had to go on and get on with the business of being rejected by the many and accepted by only the few. In Sychar, he was accepted by the many and rejected by the few. And that wasn't what he was called to. 
So he left Sychar after two days and went to the place where he would be rejected by the many and accepted and embraced only by a few. He goes into Galilee to receive the kind of welcome which he knew so well to be hollow and worthless. That is why Jesus went into Galilee, because he knew he would be rejected there. Does that seem counterintuitive to you? To go where you know you're going to be rejected? To say to yourself, I expect hostility there, so that's where I'm going to go. Paul says, I think it's at the end of 2 Corinthians, he says, a great and effective door has been opened to me for service, and there are many adversaries here. That doesn't seem like they go together, does it? A great and effective door for service and many adversaries. Jesus went to the very place where he would confront adversaries and rejection, and he viewed that as the open door for service. This is a lesson that modern evangelicalism has to embrace, and if you're going to get your head around the rest of this gospel, you're going to have to embrace this lesson as well, friends. And that is that you and I are not expected to be accepted and hailed and embraced and applauded and loved and treated with kindness by the world. Modern evangelicalism has a love affair with the applause of men and with acceptance in the world. The whole movement in our day about seminaries and Bible teachers and great theologians and great authors rejecting a literal creation and embracing millions of years and theistic evolution and all the garbage that goes with it, I think is nothing more than a desire to not be laughed at by the guys in the white coats by the guys who draw up little sketches of missing links based upon a tooth and a shin bone located miles apart from each other, and it's all fabrication of their own mind. We don't want to be laughed at by them. So we compromise. And there is nearly no doctrine and no moral standard of modern evangelicalism that people are not willing to concede and not willing to abandon just so long as we are respected and loved and applauded by the world. And the whole seeker-sensitive movement is nothing but an evidence of modern evangelicalism's love affair with the acceptance of the world. That's all it is. We wouldn't want to be rejected by the world. We don't want pagans laughing at us, thinking we're irrelevant and uncool. So let's show them how cool we are. And if we show them how cool we are, and they like us, and we like Jesus, maybe they'll like Jesus. It's stupidity. It's nothing but a love affair for the applause of men. And Jesus knew nothing of it. And I think one thing that he was showing his disciples was this. Do not get used to people accepting you. They did that in Sychar. Let's go. And he got them out of there so that they wouldn't get used to the applause and the acceptance and the embrace of men. His disciples had to learn. You go to those who are your own and you'll be rejected. And your enemies will be people of your own household. And those who know you best will hate you the most. And they learned that lesson right next to the side of Jesus. So why did he go into Galilee? He went into Galilee because he would be rejected in Galilee. He knew that going into it. And that's why he went. Now look at the reaction of the Galileans, beginning in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. You say, hold on a second. You just told me he was going to be rejected. Now I read verse 45, and it says he went into Galilee, and the Galileans received him. I was expecting the Galileans to reject him. Well, hold on a second. Up in verses 43 and 44, it says that he went into Galilee because he knew he wouldn't be welcomed. So what does John mean in verse 45 when he says the Galileans received him? Well, the next phrase explains the type of reception that he gave him, And listen, the type of reception that they gave him was not a welcome and not saving belief. It was actually a type of rejection. And I'll explain it in just a second. Look at verse 45. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Now what feast is he talking about? And what incident is John describing here that those in Galilee had seen him do? Turn back to chapter 2 of John's Gospel. Chapter 2. 
You're familiar with the turning of the water and the wine, which happened in Cana of Galilee in the first 11 verses. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers and seated at their tables. Now, what feast is John describing here? It's the Passover. So Jesus had been up in Galilee. He left Galilee to go to the feast in Jerusalem. There were others from Galilee that would have gone down to the feast in Jerusalem. They saw what he did there in the cleansing of the temple. And look on at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. And when we went through this, I told you, these are believing unbelievers. These are people who believe after a fashion, but it is not an embrace of Jesus for who he is. It is embrace of Jesus because of the signs that they saw. They saw what he did at the feast. They saw the miracles that he worked, the signs and the wonders, and they believed on him. But look at verse 24. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and he did not need for anybody to testify to him about what was in men. So though they accepted him, as it were, he rejected them. Why? Because he knew that their belief was a belief based upon what? The signs. They saw the signs that he worked at the feast. Now there were those in Cana who were in Jerusalem who saw him work the signs. Back to chapter 4, verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him because they had seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem. So what type of a welcome did he get in Galilee? It was a miracle worker's welcome. And this is an intentional contrast with those in Samaria. How is it that those in Samaria embraced him? They believed his word without a sign, without a miracle. They believed him when they heard him. And they embraced him and confessed, this one is the Savior of the world. But when he went up into Galilee where he expected to be rejected, they welcomed him as a miracle worker. Hey, the guy that can give us free food. Welcome to our town, miracle man. We have the sick and the demon-possessed and the lame and the ill and the near-dead that you can treat. They welcomed him, but they welcomed him conditionally based upon what? Signs. They saw what he had done in Jerusalem, and when he came into their city, they embraced him not as Savior of the world, not as Lord, but as one who was able to perform signs in their mists. And that, that is not saving faith. Saving faith is willing to take him at his word, believe him, and trust him, and submit to him, and obey him, and confess, this one is Lord, this one is the Savior of the world, without any signs and without any miracles. Those in Galilee, those in Galilee didn't embrace him as that. Those in Galilee welcomed him as long as he was doing the miracles. They welcomed him because he was doing the signs. They welcomed him as a miracle man but not as Savior of the world. Do you understand the difference between those two? understand the difference between those two? It is vastly different to come to Jesus because of the benefits rather than to come to Him because He is Lord and to bow the knee and to submit and to yield to Him and to confess Him as such. So now I would ask you this. Having looked at the reception that He got in Galilee and having looked at the reception that He got in Samaria, I would ask you, in which camp are you? Are you in the Galilee camp or are you in the Samaria camp? When you trust Christ, are you trusting him for the benefits? Are you trusting him because your view of him is he's a giant bellhop in the sky, the cosmic bellhop who's able to meet all your needs and do everything for you? 
and that you're willing to embrace him and trust him as long as he's fulfilling what your expectations of him are? Or are you like those in Samaria who come to him and say, he is savior of the world, and I will bow the knee and I will trust him whether I get anything out of it or not because of who he is and what he has done on the cross. Your motive for trusting Christ means everything, everything. And to come to him because and only because you're expecting something from him for your own entertainment, for your own edification, for your own fulfillment, for your own ends, that is not the same as coming to him because he is Lord and bowing the knee to him as such. So in which camp are you? Have you embraced Christ like the Samaritans or have you embraced Christ like the Galileans? which was really a rejection. Why did he go to Galilee? Because he would knew he would be rejected. How was he rejected? They welcomed him not as a prophet, not as Savior, not as Lord, not as Son of God, but as the miracle man, able to satisfy their shallow, superficial curiosity for signs and nothing more. And you're going to see that when he lays down the law for them, when he lays down the hard requirements of being a disciple in chapter 6, Guess what they do? That's enough. We've had enough. Your free food will take, but not your teaching. We don't want to know the bread of life. We just want the bread, physical bread. And they turn and they walk away from him because he did not meet their physical needs and their expectations. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful to you that you have opened our eyes to see in Scripture who Christ is and that we have come to him. We pray, O oh God, that our hearts and our desires and our lives may be open and honest before you. And Father, we repent of our false expectations and our false anticipations of who you are and what you would provide for us. We thank you that you have promised to provide for us the only thing that we desperately needed more than anything else, and that is forgiveness in your Son. And for no other reason should we come to you than that you are Lord and you are worthy of our worship and worthy of our obedience and our confidence. And we trust you because of what you have said, And what you have done only points to the validity of what you have said. Give us grace, O God, to trust your word and nothing else, and to rest our repose entirely upon your word, for it is trustworthy and reliable always. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.